Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of the Journey Within Podcast. Got a special guest with me today, Scott Limmer from Comanche Wilderness Outfitters. How are you doing, Scott? I'm great, Mark. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. So you're home in Colorado right now, getting ready for the season? Yep. Livermore, Colorado. Livermore, Colorado. Born and raised there? No, born in South Dakota and uh, came down here to go to Colorado State University and end up sta- sticking around. Never never left, huh? Nope, never left. Oh, perfect. So how, um, before we kind of dig in here, how how long have you been there then? I moved here in 1985, so gosh, quite a long time. Now, when you, uh, what'd you go to school for? I went to school for uh, business and biology. Okay. And when you, uh, how soon after you graduated, did you uh, realize that you really just wanted to be in the hunting industry? Well, I had a job in uh, restaurant management and um, I was always a big hunter and my dad and I, we're renting horses from uh, from a guy here in Fort Collins, uh, Colorado, and uh, he worked at uh, a big Kodak plant in Windsor, Colorado, just outside of Fort Collins. And anyway, my dad and I leased his horses uh, to go do our own elk hunting. I grew up with horses, but I didn't have any in Colorado. My dad would come out from South Dakota every year, and he introduced me to the outfitter um, in the Comanche Peak Willis area at the time named Doug Kirby. And Doug uh, took a lot of Kodak people hunting from back east in Rochester, New York. And he just kind of, he didn't take it too serious. He had a real job, you know, and uh, did outfitting on the side. And I started, my dad and I started renting horses from Doug. And then once, uh, when Doug was retiring, we, you know, we had become friends and he asked me if I wanted to take over the outfit. So uh, we bought his, uh, I bought his pack string and got the forest permit transferred after a while and built it from there. 
All right. So obviously you hunted with your, your dad growing up, right? Is that, that was your father, the one that got you in the outdoors? My father and, and, and really my grandfather as well. Um, and, uh, matter of fact, the last time I saw my grandfather alive was on a deer hunt in South Dakota in the black Hills. And then my, my grandparents continued on their little road trip out to Colorado to see my relatives out here. And uh, he, he died out here in Colorado. I never saw him again. But last time I saw my grandpa, we were deer hunting together. So he was a big influence on me. Okay. So obviously your, your grandpa on your dad's side then got him into the outdoors. And, and did he get any, I guess I didn't ask, did you have any other siblings? I have a, a younger brother. He's three years younger. And... He comes out here quite a bit and helps me, helps us and, uh, hunted a lot with him. Also hunted a lot with my cousin, Greg, who we were like two peas in a pod at back on the farms in South Dakota, hunting, trapping, fishing, you know, getting into mischief. Um, and, uh, so yeah, my, my family, you know, I started hunting with my family probably like most people. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to be a, a very common occurrence on the, on the podcast when we talk with all the various various guests of how they got started into the outdoors and, and just how their passion took hold. So it sounds like, especially growing up in, in South Dakota, I got to believe that you were probably hunting at a very young age, right out, right out your front door and kind of got hooked early. Oh, absolutely. My cousin Greg and I were hunting with BB guns and everything when we were five or six years old and, and, uh, you know, go for getting rid of gophers and stuff on the farms and, transitioned into big game later when that became uh, you know when he got 12 years old and then uh came down here to go to college i learned a lot about the mountains here colorado state university has a summer campus that up in the mountains that borders you know where we operate now and that's mm -hmm. kind of how i learned about the wilderness and all the elk up there and everything and invited my dad out hey let's go you know come on out come on out here we'll go elk hunting so that's so kind of how we started so back on, back on your story. So you graduated school and, and you meant, so what, how long after, um, did you actually get into the hunting industry? Um, let's see, 89, uh, and then, uh, 91, I started outfitting. So just a couple of three years. And when you started in 91, was that the only thing you were doing at the time? Like you made the decision, I'm going to go into outfitting. I'm going to do this a hundred percent. No, I, like I said, I was in restaurant management. Um, and that's how I met my wife there and everything. And then, then, uh, you know, the Doug Kirby decided to retire and we had become friends and he called me one day and said, Hey, you know, I know you love it up there in the wilderness up there. Would you want to, you know, be interested in buying my pack string and equipment and everything, getting, you know, the outfitting permit. And so for five years, I did from 91 to 95, I worked full time in the restaurant industry took eight weeks off every fall. Uh, my boss would, you know, the, the owner would cover for me because he knew I really wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. And I put my, I put my camp in and uh, hunt for six different trips and then uh, take my camp out. And then in 99, 1995, I, I was, you know, you know, getting large enough that I took the plunge and just went to full-time outfitting. I, my first year in 91, we took five hunters and then 11 and 22. And, you know, we just kept, kept building it. And then in 95, I started expanding after I quit my restaurant job, started expanding into other species. You know, she, I did my first sheep hunt in 1995. Uh, we started doing unit 20 elk. 
because uh, you know the wilderness is in unit 19 mm-hmm. so we expanded to unit 20 um in 97 i went out to the eastern plains and started doing deer hunts out there so we just kind of slowly built it the first five years i was an outfitter i didn't pay myself a dime i just put it all back into equipment and tents and trailers and vehicles and um and then in 95 when i when i quit my job uh my real job you might call it i you know took the plunge that's a, a great success story we have a lot we get a lot of questions um both from podcast listeners and then on, on social media of how to make it in the outdoor industry being it a field producer or or anything everybody everybody obviously looks at the the hunting and fishing and be like man that'd be a great job how do you get started um so i generally try to ask everybody that i have on is how would you got started in the outdoor industry and just what it takes to get going because everybody obviously sees for you it's been 35 years later so man he's got right. go, he's got it going really good 35 years later but what did it actually take to start that up and i think a lot of people um kind of blow past those those first couple years of when you think, man, look at what that guy's doing now. They, they kind of really don't see what it took to get to that point. So I always like to talk about those. And, uh, so we, everybody is listening. Um, Scott and I, the first time we actually, actually talked, it was, uh, extremely unique because as as anybody that listens knows, I'm a big, uh, um, ripcord fan on, on travel insurance and, and evac and so forth. And Scott, is I have to say probably a, uh, uh, even bigger fan than I am. I had an accident to where I was in an airboat accident and got airlifted out. Um, Scott, I'm gonna let you tell your story of, of your experience of using ripcord. It's a lot more exciting, um, than what mine was. <laughs> I don't, yeah, a lot, a lot more exciting, but, um, not always in a good way, but yeah, ripcord was great. I, uh, I was in 2016, I turned 50 years old and I, I think the most beautiful animal on the planet Earth is the bongo in uh, Central Africa, mm-hmm. and um, I always wanted one of those. and And I'd been to Africa, you know, a few times before, and uh, so I, I decided to to book a bongo hunt um, with Jack Lemieux of uh, or Jacques Lemieux of uh, Safari Bongo and in the Central African Republic, and and. Um, he had resumed hunting, hunting after there were some civil war issues there and some tribal issues and things had calmed down. I talked to some of the references that had went the last couple of years in 2014 to 15 and they didn't have any trouble. And so, so I booked the hunt and, um, I was over there uh, for a 21 day hunt trying to get a bongo and, um, a few other animals, maybe a yellow back diker and, and, uh, you know, when you're bongo hunting, you're looking for fresh tracks every morning in the salines or kind of the salty salt lick areas. So we would, you know, leave early in the morning, hike to, you know, drive for ways and then hike into these different salt licks in the middle of the forest and look for a big fresh track and follow. But anyway, long story short, on day 14, I got my bongo and we then kind of switched up to hunting for yellowback diker and, and, um, Oh, one day, um, well, a little bit of background information. There was a group in Uganda called the the Lord's Resistance Army, or LRA. It's mm. kind of a, a cult, and they would uh, terrorize these little villages and steal the children, turn the, the young boys into soldiers and the young girls into wives and, uh, you know, cause a lot of mayhem, 
kill a few people, that kind of thing. And they mm-hmm. had been kind of pushed out. They, they had been, uh, Obama, President Obama had sent the special forces to Eastern CAR and Western Uganda and kind of had cleaned up that mess or so we thought. So, you know, I thought I was okay to go there. And then on day 19 of my trip, uh, we were hunting Gillibeck Diker and we were attacked, uh, by nine guys with AK 47s. Um, we were outside of the vehicle looking at some tracks and just kind of milling around, taking a break. And, um, all of a sudden, bop, 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 you know, automatic gunfire from the edge of the forest. Uh, we were in a, in a, in a savanna in a little meadow out in the middle of the jungle. And, and, um, the, the, uh, trackers all ran to my left, uh, into the bush. Um, I was about 10 yards behind the car walking up to it when it happened. And the PH was, Jock was standing next to the car with the door open. He dove in the car and started the motor and took off and went to the right and kind of back towards where we'd come. And I was just kind of out in the open by myself, bullets whizzing by. I jumped behind a boulder about the size of a beach ball. And I'm six one and 185 pounds. So, <laughs> you know, I First didn't off, have a lot of cover there. I had a three. Six one yeah. and 185 pounds. That's a uh, definition of a mountain man right there. There are not many people that are six <laughs> one that are 185 pounds. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I do a lot of hiking. So uh, anyway, I, I'm, I'm behind this boulder and bo- bullets are going around all around me. Uh, the dirt's kicking up, there's ricochets, you know, the, in the CAR there in the jungle, the, the bedrock there is, is lava. And so we're in this meadow with just a, you know, an inch or two at topsoil here and there with lava showing through. And so the bullets are ricocheting off the lava and going by me and some are whizzing right by me and just, it was pretty scary. I, you know, it's funny, you know, I, I, I have a, an employee who is special forces for 20 years in the seventh special forces group. And we've talked about it and he, it's funny, the clarity you can have in that kind of a situation. I remember making decisions, you know, like I've got to jump behind this rock, uh-huh. I dove behind it, and then everybody else left. And I was the only one there. And I said, I got to thinking, you know, I saw four of the guys shooting, walking towards me at about a hundred yards. I'm like, you know, I've got to jump up and run zigzag, try and get away or I'm going to be captured or killed. So that's what I did. And I'm running zigzag as fast as I can doing my best impression of Carl Lewis. <laughs> and I've got a 375 H and H in my hands with you know, only three rounds in the chamber versus nine guys with AKs, you know, so mm-hmm. I, I didn't even get a, I didn't even get a shot off. There was just too much, you know, too many bullets. So I ran directly away, zigzag, you know, thinking that'd be harder to hit. And just by some miracle, all the bullets going by me, I didn't get hit. It just, I guess the good Lord was looking out for me or something. And Jock was, you know, driving away and they were shooting at him and I both. Um, They didn't shoot at the the trackers or the other African-American people. They just shot at us trying to get our, 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 our loot, you know, Mm -hmm. our money, our guns, the truck. So I'm running and Jock, I see him, you know, slow down and kind of look over the shoulder, you know, over his uh, seat and he sees that I'm still alive and running. So he slowed down, still moving and kicked the door open on the passenger side. And I did my zigzagging towards the vehicle as he's moving. And I just dove into the front, front floor, front seat area and got the door shut as bullets were still hitting the car and pretty scary. And we, we drove out of, 
we drove down to the end of the savannah, the open meadow there, and got out of range of the guns. And then we couldn't find the opening into the forest where the two-track road went into the forest, so I had to get out and look for it. No. Meanwhile, the LRA guys are running towards this, but we put a little distance on. But we did have two rear flat tires, and luckily Jacques had an air locker in his front axle where he could pull this lever inside the vehicle and lock in the front axle to where both tires were pulling. Uh-uh. And, you know, before they could run up on us and shoot again, I found the opening in the forest. This, this is a two track road that Jacques said he hadn't been on in about two years. And we found it and took off again, limping along with just two front tires with the rear shot out and, the vehicle was fairly peppered with shots. Two of them came through my mirror on my side of the vehicle, one through the wall of the vehicle and through my headrest and out the windshield. And Jock had some of the same. He had one come in right through the seat cushion right under his right under his body, yeah, wow. sitting on the seat. Pretty scary stuff. Uh, the, back, the Both rear tires were shot out. The, the rear bench seat up in the back of the cruiser that sometimes you'll ride back there, uh, was peppered with shots that kind of saved our bacon really that metal plate yeah. on the back of that seat kept more of them from coming in the cab but uh yeah so then we you know we had two flat tires i remember we, we put on maybe five or ten minutes of distance you know going quite slow with just two front tires you know inflated and, and i remember Jacques looked over at me he goes do you think we should stop and change the the, the flat tires and i just looked at him and i said you know you know, I, I used an ex- expletive. <laughs> Heck no, you know, let's just yeah. say that. And uh, he says, yeah, yeah, okay, okay. You know, we just kept driving. And and thank God for that. That was another good decision that we made because we later learned from the trackers who ran into the bush when the shooting started that they overheard the LRA get together and talk and they got got on their radio. And they called to another group out ahead of us up on the mountain, up mm-hmm. on the hill, to come down and intercept the car. And if we'd have stopped to change the tires, we'd have been intercepted. Um, you know, it would have slowed us down and too much and probably would be dead again. So it's like we had nine lives that day. And uh, we kept driving, got past that second group that we never did see but, but heard about later. And... Then the car overheated twice on the way back to camp. You know, uh, we had to stop and fill up the radiator with uh, from the puddles of water uh, along the roadside. You know, this is a rainforest, so you know there's water everywhere. And filled up the radiator a couple of times, kept moving. Quickly got to you know broke camp when we got there and uh, replaced the tires or the you know the change out with spare tires and loaded three vehicles and took off just to get out of the area. We just thought, you know, the LRA might follow us to camp. Mm-hmm. So we took off for the nearest village, which is three hours away. And uh, we got there right before dark. And that's uh, the village called Dembia, where most of Jacques' workers live, his cooks, his trackers and camp help. And Jacques has been in that area at that time for 25 years, you know, and then about another three hours away, there's a second village, uh, Rafai, which is where I'd flown in on a charter flight, which was our ultimate destination. And, but when we got to Dembia, the people in the village got really scared. They saw the truck was shot up. Um, and I was driving one truck, Jacques, the other, and then one of his workers was driving the third truck and they surrounded us, uh, blocked the road with Rick forest trees because they were worried that the LRA would come to their village, follow us there. And 
they wanted to trade me for their safety. <laughs> <laughs> so I just got shot at, you know, by I don't know how many rounds. We barely escaped with our lives. Then we get to this village and a bunch of young people got all upset and yelling and screaming and telling me to come out of the truck, pointing machetes at me through the windshield. And I was I was not getting out of that truck no. or anything. I had a 375 and a 22 long rifle and and a shotgun in there. And I thought, well, you know, I won't get them all, but I'll get a few of them. <laughs> but anyway, I I just stayed in the vehicle. Jacques got out and uh, of his vehicle and snuck over to the chief's uh, hut and got the chief over there and calmed the young people down. The, and uh, some arguments ensued, you know, a lot of yelling and screaming in French. And then I had already sent a message to ripcord with my in reach uh-huh. and i'd already sent a message to the priest in Rafai, who's the only other white guy in the whole area that a friend of jacques and there's a un detachment of soldiers at Rafai, a little a little garrison and uh, the priest and the un were headed our way three hour drive through the you know rainforest and then ripcord was on their way from oboe another town to the to our east and ripcord i was in constant com- communication with them they were great they said you know mark your vehicle with some orange flagging on the antenna um when we get to that village if we have to you know shoot our way in there to get you freed we'll have to do what we have to do um if the un gets there first they said just go with them so pretty nerve-wracking oh, yeah. um they contact. I had sent my wife an in-reach message while we were driving the shot-up vehicle that said, "Under attack, no joke." <laughs> and that's it. That was that was yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, that was it at first. And uh, you know, I was on the in-reach with the priest. The priest had an in-reach, and if I on the in-reach with Ripcord, they were giving us instructions and things. And they launched a, a ground team from Obo to come our way, and. Um, they also chartered a flight out of the capital Bangui uh, with the King Air 350 headed to uh, Rafai. So when we got to Rafai, you know, they they would be waiting there. So we anyway, uh, yeah, um, about a little after dark, um, I guess we got to the village about 7 p.m. It gets dark over there pretty late. I remember I, I don't remember exactly, but. Probably 10, 10.30 at night, we saw headlights coming, and I jumped, you know, uh, sitting in the truck, and here comes the UN with the priest. So then, uh, the, you know, the UN had, you know, automatic weapons and all that, and four vehicles, and the priest uh, gets out, and he's, you know, all the young people had been told to leave me alone and go back into their huts by the chief. The chief had said, I, you know, when, when the young people calmed down earlier, he said, you know, I'm not letting you go but we're going to keep you until, you know, the UN or gets here and mm-hmm. then the priest. Okay. So here comes the UN and the priest. They, you know, they get out. They, there was about a 40 minute argument with all the young people came back out of their huts and surrounded us again. And, but the soldiers were there and the priest and the priest and Jacques and, and uh, the chief are all, you know, and the young people all going at it and yelling and screaming. And probably after about a half hour, 40 minutes, it was finally decided we were going to leave. 
<laughs> wow. So the UN, I followed them. You know, they put their vehicles in front and behind mine. I still drove one of Jacques' vehicles, but about halfway back to Rafai, it broke down. I had to jump in with the UN. And, and the whole way out back to Rafai, they're searching the forest at night with searchlights. You know, they were still worried about the LRA attacking mm-hmm. in our group. We get to Rafai by 1.30 in the morning and uh, go to sleep. And then next morning, um, you know, Ripcord flew me out. Uh, Ripcord was great. They got me back to Bangui. Uh, they changed all my flights with Air France and everything for no no cost to me. Uh, they kept in touch with my wife. Um, I, you know, I, I got a phone call from the U.S. Embassy there, and they interviewed me about what happened. I gave them the coordinates. You know, every time you use an in reach, it marks your GPS coordinates. Yep. I was able to give them the location of the attack and everything. And then uh, they called back before I went to bed that the next day there and in Bangui waiting for my flights and asked if they could give that information to the Department of Defense. I said, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, they got me out, flew me back to the U.S. They kept in touch with me and my wife the whole way. I highly recommend Ripcord is the best $450 I ever spent in my life. Wow. That's, Crazy. That's, yeah. So as I, as I said before, a way cooler story than, than mine in an airboat accident. So <laughs> with the, the U.N. officers, like I got so many questions listening to the story again. The U.N. officers, yeah. do you remember where they were from? Yeah, so when we got, uh, they told me they were from Morocco. It was a, a group from Morocco, uh, really nice guys. They took their pictures with me and everything, you know. And uh-huh. When I got back to Rafai at, you know, like I said, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning or so, we went to their little garrison, and they took a photo of my uh, passport. I had to make a statement, um, you know, uh, basically, uh, you know, documenting everything and and they were great guys. And then they took me back over to the priest compound. The priest has a big, two big schools in Rafai, a big farm. You know, they teach all the locals English and French and everything. I mean, it's quite the operation. And so I stayed over at the priest compound. And we'd stayed there on our way in. When I flew in at the beginning of the hunt, you know, we stayed there at night okay. with the priest. And and then flew and then drove out, you know, out to camp six hours Um so yeah, I mean, uh, it was they were very great guys. I I when I got home, I emailed them and their commanders and thanked them and and everything. And uh, yeah, great people. That's that's amazing, amazing story. So did they? Did you ever yeah. find out anything? What did they ever find the guys that were shooting at you later on? Did you ever find that out? I'm um, talking with uh, Jacques. You know. Um, of course, the government heard about it, you know, the in the, the capital of Bangui. And, yeah, from what I understand, I mean, uh, I was told to stay quiet about it. So I came home. This is, you know, I, I came home in late June. I killed my bongo on June 14th, and the attack was June 19th uh-huh. on Father's Day of 2016. And they asked me, you know, the embassy people and through the military asked me through them not to not to really publicize it. Um, I mean, I think I could have sold this story to Hollywood for some good money. Yeah. <laughs> but but um, yeah, I kept quiet about it. I, I went in, you know, I had my outfitting season coming up, and and I just didn't want you know the notoriety or anything, and and just my family and really you know, and I didn't even tell my guides, my wranglers, until much later. Uh-huh. And um, and uh, so yeah, it was you know. Um, 
it was kept a little bit quiet for what I understand. They, they did do a, some operations in there, but I don't know the details. Yeah. So that's what Jacques told me. Um, and Jacques said, I, you know, he was done in that area. He just, he said, you know, we were so lucky, Scott, we, we could never live through something like this twice. And so, yeah, I may have killed the last bongo out of the area, the Rafai area. I don't know. <laughs> For quite some time anyway. So how often do you think back on this now? So it's been six years, over six, right at six years. Yeah. How, how often, mm-hmm. I imagine right afterwards you were thinking about it all the time, but like now such a, a traumatic or, or, I mean, just shocking. Yeah. Like how often do you think back about this? You know, I don't think about it that often anymore. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I didn't really have any after effects. I mean, I, I've been in some, you know, being an outfitter for 30 something years, you have some mishaps. So, you know, I've had uh, horses knock me out. I had a horse knock me out in the trailer, you know, knock me out cold. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, I must drown once with a big pack on in a river that got swollen from snow melt and different things. So not that I'm some tough guy, macho guy, I'm not saying that, but I, you know, I think in this business, you, you, you deal with a lot of adventure. Yep. So and you deal with a lot of adventure, all your travels and, and you, you're almost in a way, you know, a little bit um, hardened from some of that maybe is the right word. I don't know. But um, Jacques and I, you know, the next year at SCI, we gave each other a big hug, you know, and, and uh, it's something we'll always share how we escaped. And then, you know, I, I had uh, I had one nightmare, not, not really a nightmare. Um, I had one episode where I was at my parents' lake house for the 4th of July. This is just a week or two after the attack. Mm-hmm. Well, I fell asleep on the beach on a hammock and, uh, the, the, at the house next door, the next house, there was, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of fireworks and stuff. A little kid lit off a whole package of firecrackers at once. So all of a sudden I woke up, you know, I, that woke me up to a bop, 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 bang, 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 you know, uh-huh. just like the automatic gunfire when it started. And I sat up really quick in the hammock and I, I kind of had to get my bearings. You know, sometimes oh, you yeah. wake up from a dream or from being startled and I, I'm like looking around like, oh, oh, okay, okay, easy, you know, calm down, <laughs> you're at the beach. You know, yeah. I, I had that little episode and then probably only like a year ago, I had a dream where I was driving my pickup, my Ford pickup, and somebody shot my windshield out. You know, that that's the only two things I can even think of. Um Unfortunately, Jacques wasn't quite so lucky. He, he, him and his wife shared with me that he was having some nightmares, um, that, uh, he couldn't watch TV shows with any kind of shoot ups on them. Um, had a little bit of issues and he, he's over that now. Uh-huh. I've talked to him, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, everybody handles a little bit differently. Uh, I, one thing I did is I talked about it to my family, you know, I got it out, yep. you know, which I think is helpful. And, uh, so I've been lucky in that respect. So, yeah, well, that's good. I mean, that's just, just yeah. so crazy. But I do, about it, you know, once in a while, and some of my close clients, I've told them the story, and of course, my employees know now. And once in a while, we'll be in hunting camp, and one of my repeat clients will bring it up to the group. Oh, you got to hear Scott's story. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'll re- retell it a bit, and and uh, 
But I don't think about it, you know, I definitely don't think about it daily, not even monthly anymore. You know, maybe a, a few times a year when somebody brings it up, I, it's really, I've tried to put it behind me. So how, how um, soon after did you go back on an international hunting trip again? Well, I had a hunt in Tanzania booked for the very next year. Okay. <laughs> so, so, yeah, right away, my wife and I, I, in 2017, went to Tanzania, um, and, uh, you know, Tanzania is a very safe country. I mean, as safe as, as they get over yep. there anyway, and didn't have any problems. I, I, you know, never really had any other problems in Africa, um, or Asia or anything, you know, but, uh, but yeah, that you know, I don't really recommend going to the Southeastern part of CAR. No, I think we'll, we'll <laughs> stick far so, clear. We'll stick far clear of that. Yeah. So... Um, what's been your, I know you do a ton of international travel and on the hunting side and so forth. What's your, what's been your favorite hunting memory or favorite spot that you've been able to go so far? Oh boy, that's a good one. I mean, Tanzania is amazing. Um, I'd have to say one of the hunts that really stands out for me is my stone sheep hunt clear back in like 2005 when. I got my stone sheep hunt. It was the biggest one of the year that Art Thompson with Gundahoo Outfitters had killed. I got it on the 13th day of a 14-day hunt. You know, it's just a, a gut buster, brutal, oh. grinded out hunt, you know. And uh, I was, you know, kind of silly back then. I, I turned down a ram on like day two or something like that that was legal, but just wasn't, you know, to me, I just, I thought it was too young, yep. even though it might, it was full curl, but it was just spindly wasn't a real heavy ram and you know i i i do my research like you i you know i there was a a handful of outfitters i had decided i would hunt stone sheep with and i i look at the genetics and the type of rams that come out and all that if i'm only going to do something once you know i might as well do it right it's kind of my attitude about these hunting and um you know, I've got two Rocky Mountain sheep. I've got, you know, a desert and a stone. And, you know, so I've got my slam, but I'm not the type of person that'll probably be able to do multiple slams unless I draw some tags, yep. you know. And uh, so that one was definitely memorable. Um, and uh, I had a doll sheep hunt that was pretty tough as well. Where I was basically my own guide, even as a non-resident, you know, I, I have an assistant guide license in Alaska. You can't guide yourself. So the outfitter I went with in the Chugach, he just sent a, an, a, one of his assistant guides with me who, but he'd never hunted sheep. <laughs> he would, he had just hunted brown bears. And so that was a, a good, you know, a good memory because I actually, you know, found my own sheep and uh, I was legal. I had the guy with me, I had a contract with an outfitter and right. he was legal. But it was a little bit self-guided, you know, yeah. uh, in a way. That's I remember looking at Rams in the spotting scope and saying to the guy who was with me, oh, do you want to take a look? And he goes, no, that's okay. I, I don't know what I'm looking at anyway. I mean, he wasn't even interested. In just, he was just there for the day. He was he was out for the <laughs> yeah. hike. Yeah. That's funny. So uh, that one was unique. But, you know, they're all unique. I, what I like and probably what you like is the variety. You know, if I had mm-hmm. to do elk hunts year-round or if I had to do just, you know, I like the variety, whether it's guiding or hunting myself, you know, and I'm, I'm not a collector. Like I, you know, I've been to Africa several times and I'm not trying to mark off the list, you know, um, I, I'm, there's certain, I mean, I love planes game, like, you know, stuff with the bigger horns, yep. you know, kudu, 
Eland, uh, Gemsbach, uh, you know, some of that kind of stuff. Uh, like this year, I'm going to, I'm going for a sit of Tonga and some Lech ways, but you know, I like dangerous game, but I almost enjoy the Plains game just as much, if not more, because you know, you're not checking baits and all that. You're just out there hunting. Exactly. You know? and, yep. And, uh, dangerous game is great. You know, as you know, I guide for brown bears in Alaska in the spring. So, I mean, I'm, I'm used to dangerous game hunting and guiding, but I love horns and antlers, you know, mm-hmm. I really do. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. I like the variety, but those, those hunts kind of stand out to me. Those two sheep hunts. Hey everybody, I'm a believer in using the best and that's exactly what Gunworks rifles are. They're the best in the market. If you're looking for accuracy and dependability, make sure to go check them out. Get that gun of a lifetime coming your way at gunworks.com. If you guys are looking for the best seat covers on the market, you got to make sure to check out Rough Tough. I've had them in my truck now going on four years, and they are bulletproof. Make sure to check them out, roughtough.com. If you're looking to book the trip of a lifetime, make sure to give the team at WTA a call at 1-800-755-8247 or check out our website, worldwidetrophyadventures.com. So what is your, if, if... Knowing you may already have this plan, what is your dream hunt? What's the one that you haven't done yet that you're you most want to do? Um, you know, I have a hunt with a friend, uh, one of my guides. Um, he's a real successful real estate guy here in Fort Collins, and guides just for the fun of it. You know, obviously we pay him, but he doesn't do it for the money. Mm-hmm. You know, he does it to hunt. So his wife and my wife and I are going to Tanzania next year and splitting a full bag in the Moswa with uh, Mike Fell. Oh, that's pretty And cool. which is probably one of the ultimate places to hunt in Tanzania, bordering the Serengeti. So, so that's kind of my dream hunt. Um, another one is uh, blue sheep in Nepal. That one's kind of on my list yeah, blue someday. She- blue sheep in Nepal is on, on my list as well. We may have to go together on that one. I've, yeah, I've, yeah, that's great. I, I, was- I, I I was darn close to pulling the trigger um, to go in 2020 um, oh, wow. for, for the next year in 21. And then COVID happened, obviously, so that I, I, I lost. Because you got to build up, as I tell everybody, you got to build up your courage before you finally say yes to that one. Just because I, I've done the blue sheep in northern Pakistan. I know what's going to be involved, not just the altitude, but the travel and everything else that, that is just part of that. Yeah. And, and after yeah. doing it in Pakistan, I'm like, man, I got build up the courage, build up the courage. And I had the courage built up and then the courage went away <laughs> during COVID. So I just got to build it back up again. And I know every year that passes, it's just going to get steeper and steeper. I know. And, and I, you know, the one I've, uh, you've probably researched it as well that, you know, it's kind of like you helicopter in a ways, but then it's a two day up to a two day hike. To yep. bike camp. Yeah. That's just, it's. That's what that's where I'm that's talking. That. You gotta you gotta build yourself up just knowing you're hiking straight up for two days. I want to say yeah. what what the helicopter go to? It goes to like twelve five to thirteen five, something like that. Uh, I think no, I think it's more. I mean, Katmandu alone is like in town is twelve or thirteen. I think it goes to sixteen or seventeen, 16. and then and then you just have to hike for two days to get to camp. I don't know if there's nowhere to land or if it's just, you know, too high for the helicopter or too, too rough to land, you know, helicopters got to have a pretty good flat surface yep. to land on. I remember, I, rope, but, uh, I just remember the hiking part, like you weren't covering very much elevation during the, right. during the hiking part, but then that's, that's just one of those trips. So, you know, you've got 
how many days you got to travel over there. Then you got the, the day probably to, it sounded like a day to clear your gun, get everything set there in town. And, and then if yeah. everything's running, you get up the hill the next day, then you got two days. So you're staring at six days before you're even really in the hunting area. Yeah. And that's great. But, oh, then, yeah. but then, you know, as soon as you pull the trigger, you got six days right on the backside to get back. Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, there's a couple other animals you can kind of hunt on your way out. Mm -hmm. I forget their name. Maybe the month. Yeah, I forget. But uh, there's a wolf and then there's another antelope type species, but or a deer. I forget the name. But um, yeah, it's a it's a brutal trip just getting there and getting home. You know, Um, so, yeah, it's it's. It's one of those I've thought about. Uh, you know, I still don't have a polar bear, so that one's on the list. Um, you know, and I want my clients to know I, I didn't make this, you know. <laughs> <laughs> some of these hunts I've been able to do have been fairly, you know, expensive. But I also did some real estate business, you know. I bought some land at the right times and sold it and things. So, you know, th- this isn't really outfitting money. Yeah. This was more, you know. I've taken some of my real estate proceeds and went hunting. <laughs> no, that's, that's a smart business. Smart business person. There is is you got your love and passion yeah. that you do every day, but it's the, it's the side things that sometimes you make more money with. That's too yeah too funny. Well, let's talk about Comanche wilderness now. Um, I mean, okay. this is a unique one. As I tell everybody, like who I recommend in Colorado, I mention you, and it's unique because you don't have to advertise so that's when you know you've hit a different level if you're to the point where somebody goes and, and like his website looks like it's 15 years old i'm like that's because he's booked up every year he doesn't, yeah. he, doesn't he doesn't need he doesn't need to update it that's that's when you know you're with the right guy but you get all the recommendations and everything so let's just start um i mean obviously everybody loves elk hunting so let's go over all the elk hunts that that you offer yeah sure so we like you said uh, a while back we started with the wilderness elk and um we now have, you know, seven or eight camps up there spread out in the wilderness area. It's on the, you know, we, we're on the north boundary of Rocky Mountain National Park. It's all wilderness. So, you know, you have some good advantages there. You have, uh, you know, a big resource of elk with the national park there that they don't get hunted in that 265,000 acres. Uh, it is wilderness. It is high country alpine, you know, elk habitat. So, you know, we have our own elk. We just get subsidized, if you will, by the park. You know, we kill big bulls, they get replaced, yep. you know, so, so it's a great situation with that. It, it's tough hunting. It's wilderness elk hunting, you know, they're, they're not stupid. You gotta, you know, you, you gotta uh, plan your stocks out well and, and, you know, they're, they're on alert big time. Um, but it's a, it's a real challenge, a great, you know, wilderness type elk trip. If somebody's interested in that, um, we do both guided hunts up there and drop camps. We do a mixture, uh, doing a few drop camps allows us to get away and do a few sheep and goat and moose hunts as well. You know, we're not just guiding elk every single day, but, uh, we do quite a few of both, uh, drop and guided Expl- hunts. Explain and then, the, the drop camps. What, like if somebody said, mm-hmm. man, that sounds kind of interesting. What, what, what does that entail? What comes with it? So we supply a fully, you know, outfitted camp, you know, a 12 by 18 wall tent, a smaller tent for storage, um, you know, wood stove, propane cooking and heating, um, uh, you know, cots, pads, table, chairs, you know, all the cookware, it's even down to game bags and maps. So it's very fully supplied. We, you only bring your sleeping bags. You don't bring any other camping gear. We take a group of four guys. And we pack them into a camp and we pack them in and out, pack their game out, all included. I think right now those are 10,000 bucks. So about 2,500 per guy. 
Mm-hmm. It's a pretty economical way to get into a backcountry hunt where you're not competing with the road hunters and regular national forest. You know, we're a national forest, but it's designated wilderness only, which is foot and horseback only travel. Okay. So we do that area. Um, and then uh, to the east side of the park, we operate uh, on private land in unit 20. It's a quality draw unit where it takes a number of preference points or landowner vouchers to hunt. Back to the wilderness quick. It's only about a point or so to hunt there. But, you know, we also have vouchers for people that don't mess with points. Um, so, but back to unit 20 again, it's private land, um, you know, staying in a ranch house, hunting private property. Um some big bulls, you know, same kind of genetic, same kind of basic herd, just uh, a totally different type of hunt. You know, instead of packing in, you're using a truck or ATVs to get around and you're hunting private land. And yeah. then in unit nine, uh, we have a new ranch there as of last year, uh, 14,000 acres. Unit nine is unique. It's one of the only units in, in the foothills or mountains of Colorado. It's a hundred percent private property unit. There's no public land there at all. So we have the second, first or second largest ranch in there, um, contiguous, um, and we're managing it. We just take two hunters at a time. The, the ranch has never been outfitted on before. It's in a trust, so we deal with the, the trustees um, and uh, have a contract with them. And uh, we just take two guys a week in there. You know, and, mm-hmm. uh, fourteen thousand acres, pretty pretty high quality opportunity. You know, some three hundred class bulls you know, um, pretty high success. Um, so those are the three elk hunts that we do. That one's private land. Again, like I said, it's not a wilderness hunt, but we have the one wilderness and the two private land opportunities. And unit nine is quite easy to get licensing in. We also, we also do some antelope and and deer there. We get landowner vouchers and, or it's a fairly easy draw because it's being all private. There's not much, uh, not much for applications in the draw there. Yeah. So let's, uh, yeah. let's, let's bounce to antelope then. What, what antelope hunts do you offer? So we have antelope hunts on the Eastern Plains. Um, and then we have some here at the, at the ranch here in Livermore that I was just talking about in Unit 9. And then uh, we have antelope. We have a BLM permit up in the area of North Park, Colorado, near the town of Walden. And those the units take like 16, 17 points to draw up there. It's kind of crazy. Wow. Um, very few tags, a lot of public land, a lot of private bulls. So we hunt on private up there as well as public. We have a BLM permit for unit six, 16, 17, and 171. Um, and, uh, kill some nice antelope up there. You know, it's, there's not that many tags and, uh, and there's some good quality. You know, if you look up Jackson County and the Boone and Crockett record book, you'll see that for Colorado, Jackson County is fairly well, you know, recognized in Boone and Crockett or, you know, represented, I mean, mm-hmm. so, um, but so we do, you know, a few different antelope hunts. We have another one in unit 105 on private property where we just take four guys a year and we have vouchers for that, or it takes a point or two. So, so, you know, I, I love hunting antelope. It's, uh, you know, kind of reminds you of Africa. You see a lot of game, um, you know, it's not, can I kill one? It's how big, right? Yep. So it's just a selective process. And I mean, anybody can go get an antelope usually if they draw the right tag, but you know, it's fun to break them down and look at the three, the three characteristics of antelope are length, prongs, and mass, you know, and if you got two of those three characteristics pretty strong, it's probably a shooter buck for, for Colorado. You know, if you got all three, it's probably a Boone and Crockett buck, you know? Mm. 
I never heard. Oh, I never heard it broken down by the by the three like that. That's probably the most simple I've ever heard it broken down. Is what you just said. Yeah, yeah. Antelope are very tough to judge. You know, I mean, mountain goats and antelope and sheep to a lesser extent have like a almost like a dwarf type genetic once in a while where you'll you know if you you have to be very careful as you may have run across this I don't know or talking to hunters where you see a lone male animal yeah. like a mountain you know, mountain goat uh pronghorn or a sheep you have to be very careful that you know they're they can be full curl rams or they can be you know look like a big antelope because they have a lot of length above the ears and things like that but then you know they can be a small bodied small horned animal but but it's best to look at you know several males together if you have that choice um but yeah it's uh, length prongs and mass if you look at those three characteristics usually they'll keep you out of trouble so on to mule deer now. I think this is probably next to elk, everybody's second favorite there. Yeah. Yeah, so mule deer, we, we do hunt here in the foothills a bit. We call them foothills deer hunts, both in Unit 20, where we hunt elk, and in Unit 9, where we hunt elk. We have a few mule deer hunts we do every year. You know, the bucks range from 160 to 170. Once in a while, we'll break the 180 mark. Um, and then once in a blue moon, we'll get a 200-inch deer, but pretty rare um just nice quality decent mule deer for most people um our biggest deer that we take are out on the eastern plains we started hunting out there in 1997 like i said earlier so we've been out there a long time we have a lot of ranches uh, we have four units out there that we hunt for mule deer and, and another unit we hunt for whitetail and uh trophy quality is hanging in there pretty good it's decreased a little bit with the state of colorado uh chronic wasting disease management where they're giving out some more tags than they used to but um being on private land we're able to keep it pretty pretty high quality yet i mean we we still take a few 200 inch type you know plus bucks a year and a lot of 180s and 190s and so that's that's where our, our, our biggest deer are but it we have quite a waiting list of a few years three four years to get in because it only takes four points so because it's private land and mm -hmm. points are low but, uh, you know, the guys that come, they, they almost immediately rebook for four years later. So we kind of have this rotational thing of clients that keeps rolling along. And we, we do take a few new people here and there, but we just got to get on the list of ways in advance. It's amazing what big deer will do. That's, that's, when, that's when you know you got big deer is when the clients just automatically rebook for the, the four years down the road when they know they're going to draw again. And you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned whitetails. Like w the Eastern Plains is so unique because they do have they do have whitetails, but mm -hmm. the, the density is so much lower. Like I'll go, I'll go out here in Michigan or hunt Kentucky, and I'll go out and I, I'll see seventy five to a hundred different deer in a in a sit in an afternoon. And then out in the Eastern Plains is so much different. Yeah, even where we hunt, our unit is unit, you know, up on the South Platte River in Northeast Colorado, where it's primarily whitetail habitat along the river. But even there, yeah, I don't think we have the kind of numbers you're talking about. Um, and we hunt them spot and stock in the hills above the river, as well as we have, you know, elevated blinds. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's we only take four guys a year, you know, pretty much for whitetail, just to be really quality conscious and. And, um, you know, David Blanton, as you know, hunted with this last fall, killed a real nice buck. That'll be coming out on his show. Um, he's hunted out there with us before. And then, uh, but it's a pretty, pretty reliable for 150 
plus type of whitetail deer. Um, you know, we've killed them up into the one nineties. Uh, we killed a two thirteen once, but that, you know, that was a big non-typical, but that's not the norm. You know, norm is one fifties, one sixties, and occasionally we kill a booner, you know, yeah. but, um, yeah, it's a different type of whitetail hunting. You know, it's not all tree stand or, you know, there's some spot and stock. What happens with, with along the river there, it's a fairly narrow, uh, you know, habitat area where it turns out into open country pretty quick above the river. And But these bucks, they'll, they'll push a doe up into the hills above the river, above the cover, above the trees, you mm-hmm. know, and get up in the coolies and draws and try and get that doe away from all the buck traffic on the river, you know, so... We kill some of our biggest bucks, you know, not even in the trees or, you know, in the cottonwoods and oaks. We're killing them up, you know, up in the draws, you Just know, ab- above the view. As they get a single doe off into the, by yeah. themselves. See, and that, that's so unique because that stuff happens. Like in Michigan, you just can't do that because you can't see that far because everything's so much timber. Yeah. But it's interesting hearing you talk about that because it happens here. You just can't see it because it's not as open as, as what what you're doing because yeah. you'll you'll be in all these high density areas and you're like i know there's a big buck here but most of the time during the rut that big buck's taking an individual doe off yeah to the side and then we'll come back grab another doe and so forth but you you just don't get them where the mass the mass amount of deer are yeah exactly yeah we see it because you know we'll see deer uh, out of our blinds on the river we'll see a lot of deer but not not quite the numbers you guys have back east but yeah. we'll see a fair number of deer but you know then we'll you know, in the middle part of the day, we'll go sneak those draws and it, it's pretty tough. You know, you have to be pretty cagey with it, peeking over those little draws and hills into the little gullies. And, you know, sometimes they can be 50 yards or 200 yards or whatever. I mean, and you know how whitetails oh. are, they're very aware. So it's quite a feat to peek over and get, get one of them bucks shot before they run for the river, Yeah, you know, but, it, but we do it, you know, you just got to go slow one step at a time, peeking up over the hill and be ready to, you know, get down and take a shot quick before they alert and take off. Cause, but it, it is pretty fun. It is um, fun. But it's, uh, it's definitely challenging. And, it, it, you know, with David last year, it was a little bit tough to get him, a cameraman and the guy, you know, doing that and still, you know, get the buck killed before it ran, you yep, know? Yep. It always adds a different level when there's a camera guy in the, in the field. Yeah. And he ended up shooting his from a blind. It was a 155, you know, real nice buck. And, uh, but you know, we, we tried to spot and stock as well, but you know, even without a cameraman, it's challenging. And you add the cameraman, it's just kind of makes, you know, you have a, a whole third, another person there, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, I'm sure we would have pulled it off at some point out there in the open with him that we just ended up, uh, you know, cause at different times of the day, we do different things, you yep. know, and the yep. evenings we're in the blinds and sometimes in the mornings too, you know, and at midday we'll go for a hike, you know, kind of thing. That's good. So, cause it keeps you going all day versus having, having downtime. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the draw hunts that, um, guys can get that, that you outfit start with mountain goat, bighorn, and then head right on into moose. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. 
This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Yeah, so our mountain goat, sheep, and moose have the same draw system. You know, you have to get three preference points to be in the pot. So your first three years, you're, you're just, you're not, you don't have a, you have zero chance of drawing the first three years. And then from four years on, you have a chance to draw. And, um, you know, every year thereafter, you get a weighted point, they call it, not another preference point, but a weighted point. Basically, you get a six-digit random number from the computer. The lowest number usually draws, but before they decide that, they, they lower the numbers further by dividing your six-digit random number by your weighted points plus one. So let's say if you had a, you know, you're assigned a six-digit random number and you had seven weighted points, they're actually going to divide your, your number by eight, you know, seven plus one. Mm-hmm. So it rewards you for sticking in there, but there's still everybody has a chance their fourth year on. So so that's kind of the system works, as you know, with, you know, uh, WTA tags, you guys, you know, put a lot of, put a lot of guys in that draw. So that's great. Yep. Um, but yeah, you got to draw first. Uh, we don't book anybody, of course, before the draw, um, like we do for our other hunts that we can predict the tags. Um, but yeah, our mountain goat, you know, we, we hunt kind of the, the central part of the state, uh, G6, G7, G4, uh, G16, um, kind of west of Denver there. Um, and, uh, those are our mountain goat units that we we've hunted for, I don't know, for 20 years or so. We only take a couple of mountain goat guys a year, usually just with the draw and, and everything, but, and, uh, and we usually book them for like a three or four day hunt plus some, some scouting time. You, you can hunt those units only Monday through Friday, most of them. So, uh, on the weekends with the tourists, they just, they don't allow hunting anymore. Um, so we usually get, you know, our goats found on the weekend and then Monday morning, we're pretty much, you know, going on a stock. Ready to roll. Uh, yeah. yeah. So the hunts really, other than the weekend that we don't count, you know, we usually like book them for a three day hunt cause we, we have the whole weekend to find some goats and, uh, and then, um, you know, so they're pretty quick hunts, but they're fun. Um, Got to be in good shape. Uh, we took the governor's tag uh, guy last year for an archery hunt, and he got his goat on the first day, a nine-and-a-half-inch billy. Just got lucky, made a fantastic shot. And it was a good thing because uh, big big whiteout rolled in the next day, so we would have been shut down for a day or two, but um, got it done. And But most of the hunters we take are just normal draw guys, and we try to get billies that are nine inches or better. You know, We don't have a, much for 10-inch goats in Colorado. But we, we concentrate on, you know, trying to get the, the nine inchers, which are pretty nice, mature goats. Um, and, you know, you look for billies, which, you know, uh, their horns have more of a gradual curve to them, whereas the nannies kind of curve more towards the tip. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, look for that big body size. To me, they look like a big old white buffalo up there sometimes, you know, um, big body. And, uh, you know, goats are another one of those animals that, there's kind of two genetic strains where you'll have just giant bodied goats and you have some that are a little bit smaller. We always try to look for those biggest bodied ones. They usually have the heaviest horns and the biggest horns. So just have to look for those kind of things. And, you know, the, to the 
regular person who's not a hunter maybe or not a goat hunter you know how do you tell them apart well the billies like i said the horn curvature is more on a gradual curve they're generally bigger body they're generally more solitary or in very small groups and they also uh they stretch forward to urinate whereas the nannies will kind of like a dog will squat so okay. those those are all the keys we use to identify sex on them there are some either sex tags in Colorado too, where you can do either either sex, but uh, we primarily just deal with billy billy hunters. Um, we've taken a few nannies over the years, but not too many. As far as sheep, um, same draw system, like I said. And Colorado, we're not known for you know lots of Boone and Crockett type sheep, but we we've gotten several over the years. But you know, one sixty one seventy class ram is more of a Colorado type of genetics out there. We like I said, we have killed a. Uh, several in the 180s over 30 years but uh one in 190s um but you know you you should be happy in colorado with a 165 to 175 ram that's kind of where our sweet spot is okay um and that's just you know based off uh you know how big the bases are as you know how much degree of curl they have how open the curl is you know you can have a older ram with a really tight curl and small bases and he looks big but he might not outscore a younger ram with a big open curl and bigger bases you know even though that the horn tapers faster you know so it's just a lot of uh a lot of subjectiveness there to to wade, to wade through and figure out um but um we do a lot of different sheep hunts around the state you know right here around livermore we have sheep on public and private land we have you know, we have resident-only units. We have, you know, units for non-residents. And just, you know, the guys can get a get a hold of me and we can talk about the different units or they can call, you know, WTA tags. They're, they're pretty up on it, too. So how many, on average, how many um, sheep hunters do you take a year? Five or six. We've okay. taken up to nine a year, but usually five, four to six, somewhere in that range. Um, this year, we've got a bow hunter August 1st coming up here quick. And then uh you know i think we have four more rifle hunts after that or three more something like that um and uh moose uh same draw type of system with the bone that you know the weighted points and everything um we probably take more moose hunts than sheep or goat um we're, we kind of have where we're at, at here in northern colorado where the moose were first transplanted in from wyoming and utah you know we have awesome moose habitat here um so, you know, we operate in some resident-only units. Uh, we operate in, you know, units with both resident and non-resident. Um, I think this year we have like eight moose hunters. You know, we take quite a few moose. Um, we've got one in, two in unit 19, two in unit 7, 8. We've got three in unit 6. we got one in 18. Um, and uh, I had a couple other guys we're considering, but, you know, we don't want to get overloaded. Yep. So. But the moose here, as you know, are quite high quality. You know, Colorado doesn't issue quite as many tags as some of the other states do, and we don't have uh, much for wolves yet. Um, so our moose are doing quite well. You know, what we look for on moose is at least forks up front on the brow palm. Um, you need that for the length of paddle measurement up to the back top edge of the palm up high. So, you know, it starts at the the forks down there at the brow palm or the, if you have three or four points up there, that's even better, but you need at least forks up front is what we look for. We look for 10 inch with a paddle or better at the widest point. We look for 10 or more points aside 
um, and, you know, spreads in the 40s. You know, we'll, we'll kill some in the 50s. Kind of the rule of thumb for moose, as you probably know, you know, mid-40s for Shiras is, is a nice moose, mid-50s for Canadians, mid-60s for Alaskan, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, the, some Alaskan guys kill 70-inch moose, just like some of our Shiras hunters kill 50-inch moose, but it's more common to be in the 40s. And so, um, you know, the mass usually takes care of itself if they have all those other characteristics. It's kind of hard to judge mass. We just look for good length of paddle with the forks up front, at least, uh, with the paddle, the number of points, and the outside spread. So they're pretty easy to judge, really, once you get the hang of moose. Yeah, I know the the you guys kill some hammer moose. That's all I know is once the, the pitchers start in the fall, I'm, I'm always yeah. blown away with the moose that you guys you guys pull out. Yeah, I mean, we're lucky here. We we have moose here that are, you know, we've had moose that would have made the Canadian record, you know, for Canadian species record book. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, some of our Shiras moose look like they could be Canadians, you know. Um, but, yeah, we get some tremendous moose here. That's awesome. For sure. So did I miss, did I miss anything that Comanche Wilderness offers? Oh, gosh, not really. I mean, uh you know, we do the big eight species. We, we don't do a lot of bear hunts here. You know, it, our best bear hunt, black bear hunting here is in September when we're so doggone busy with sheep, goat, moose, and elk, you know, um, once in a, once in a while we'll have somebody with a bear tag in their pocket and we'll kill a bear. It's kind of a shame because we do have some big bears if we had more time to concentrate, concentrate on them. Um, but, uh, you know, we lost our, spring hunting clear back in 1990 or 91 so you know we we really only have the fall season that and it interferes or you know overlaps i should say with so many other species it's just kind of hard for us to do much for bears but i i do go to alaska and guide brown bears in the spring to make up for it and so. uh, when scott says he guides brown bears he guides uh, giant brown bears from the pictures i see when you head up there as well um i'm guessing those black bears are color phase majority color phase you know, I would say it's, I wouldn't say majority. I would say we, we have a mixture, a good mixture, you know, probably most of them are black, but we do get some, you know, some cinnamon for sure. Yeah. 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 Always, always cool in the, in the fall. So you've, you've obviously been in the industry a long time, outfitted a long right. time, traveled a long, ever, seems like almost all over the place to, to hunt. So you've got a lot of hunting experience. What is something that you've learned that for anybody listening here, just with, with your wealth of knowledge and experience that you could pass on to a, a younger hunter or somebody that's, that's getting into it or that's new and just kind of just getting their feet wet. Well, yeah, it kind of depends on the species, but generally relentlessness, you know, you just have to be relentless hunting big game. You can go from a zero to a hero so quick, you know, you, you can go upland game bird hunting like you know, I grew up in the Dakotas doing, and you're generally always going to find some game and, you know, you can go fishing in the right mm-hmm. places and generally have good trips, but big game hunting, you know, you're looking for, you know, that one animal that meets your criteria. It's just, you got to be relentless. You got to hunt good areas. You got to, you know, put your resources into it. And, you know, some of the younger generation, I, I would tell them, you know, get used to being off the grid and away for a week. You know, like, uh, you know, with the social media now and everything, everybody's so busy and nobody takes the time to smell the roses as much as they used to. But, 
you know, dedicate yourself to a week long trip. You know, um, we don't, we, we do a lot of those trips or so we're used to it, but we, we get clients, you know, that they're used to just hunting weekends out of their, their cabins yeah. or, you know, out the back door where they live or out on in the whitetail woods. And, you know, um, you got to dedicate yourself to, especially elk hunting. I mean, elk are so fickle. I mean, you talk to booking agents, they'd rather book 10 African safaris than one elk hunt, you know, cause elk yeah. are just tough. I mean, they're like a elk are like a giant whitetail. They're just very aware, you know, um, and you got to get the drop on them and uh, fool them, call them, whatever, spot them from a distance and make it work. But, but I love elk hunting for the challenge. I mean, I love uh, to get the big bulls, uh, but, um, or somebody, their first elk, but I used to do some seminars for the Rocky mountain elk foundation years ago at some of the regional banquets, you know, um, I'd give away a hunt and then, you know, I did some seminars, uh, before the banquets and things. And, and I always used to tell people, you know, there's kind of, you know, hunt wilderness or limited draw areas or private land. I mean, you know, and, um, you know, I'm in a state where only 17% of our units are quality units. You know, everybody talks about Colorado doesn't have any big bulls. We do. Mm-hmm. You just have to play the, the points game or hunt some private or, you know, find those units that are more private than public where the points are lower and do your research. I mean, um, the outfitting association here used to have a contest called the best of species and, uh, they gave it up, uh, I don't know, five years ago or so. And Comanche wilderness outfitters, our outfit pretty well dominated it. I mean, for elk cause, and we're not even in some of the units with the highest points, but we're in good areas. And it's just a relentlessness, you know, and, and, um, get off the road, you know, mm-hmm. like, like we talked about the drop camps. If you can't afford a guided hunt, you know, about anybody can afford a drop camp, you know, if you have a group of buddies. So, I mean, truthfully, you know, truthfully, I did some of those seminars and, you know, talking about those three things to try. And I remember one time I was up at one of the trailheads and here's some guys camping at the road, which is what I absolutely did not recommend. <laughs> they had been to my seminar. Oh, we went to your seminar. We thought we'd come out here and hunt. And I'm like, I didn't say anything, but to myself, I'm thinking, well, you're doing exactly opposite of what I tried to teach you. Well, they at least you got know. to the right state. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I, the, the drop cancer, you, you brought that up again. Cause I was, I, I always jot down notes when, when I do the podcast, just, it kind of helps me remember and so forth. And I just remember that like the, the cost of the, the drop tent, by the time you have four guys there for that, that elk hunt. Truthfully, if you think yeah. about it, if you're going to go try and do that by yourself, just the cost of the yeah. equipment and everything that you're going to have to do, not, right. not alone set it up or set it up in the correct spot and get yeah. taken away from the mass amount of people that are that are there, like that's a, it's extremely affordable, if not even cheaper than what you could go and do it, do it yourself by. Like just think about, yeah. what, you know, I mean, what, what, what a tent that size costs or what the 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 yeah. equipment just to get food out there so you could stay out a week versus, you know, I'm going to hike in there for a day, but then I run out of food and water. So I'm going to have to get back out right when I actually get in there. Yeah. Yeah. The hike-in hunters, I call them from the road, you know, about the time that they arrive where we're hunting, the day is done. You know, the elk are in the trees and starting to bed. And then they start to hike out to go back to the road about the time that it's getting prime time again for us, yep. you know? So it's, really about being in the right place at the right time and knowing the country and you know 
uh, we have drop camp groups that have been coming for 25 years. You know, they don't, they, they may not come every year. Some of them do, but we have some that come every other year. You know, it takes a preference point to draw our area. So, you know, they'll come every other year or they'll buy vouchers in the off years. But, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's an economical way to do it. I mean, by the time you drive out from Ohio or wherever and, the, you know, and uh, have your own gear and be camping near the roads with all the other hunters, I mean, you're probably spending, like you said, about the same amount and you're not getting the benefit of being in the wilderness and being back in. And, you know, we, we pack the, the elk out for you. All you got to do is quarter them, you know, yeah. so uh, you don't have to even carry them back to camp. You know, we just, we can usually get our horses to the kill site. Um, and we go over, you know, with the hunters before we pack them in, you know, how to get them quartered, get them out of the sun, you know, cover them up with some pine boughs, uh, keep the, kind of like in Africa, you know, where they cut the, cut the trees and the leaves and, and shade the meat, you know, yep. we tell them to do it here. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's an e- economical way to go. And, and, uh, most of our guided hunts aren't too crazy expensive. I mean, we do most of them two on one, you know, get a lot of father sons or two friends or two brothers mm-hmm. that keeps the cost down. And, and, uh, we can usually get both, you know, both guys elk, you know, not, not every time, but it's, makes it a little more economical to do a two-on-one which is kind of what we do mostly um but yeah i know i you know um that's what we started doing was elk and just kind of expanded into the other species little by little so so the the last question I've, i've got for you what makes colorado such a unique state for hunting well, it's really the habitat. I mean, we have more mountains above 10,000 feet in Colorado than the rest of the states combined. And it's kind of hard to fathom that. But the mountains come right through the center of our state. They don't, you know, in, in Montana, they're mostly on the western edge. Um, in, in, uh, in, in Wyoming, the same, you know. Um, so we just have more habitat and you have to do a little more research here. There's, you know, a fair amount of hunting pressure in our over-the-counter elk areas, but mm-hmm. there are draw areas that you can draw every few years or something and increase your odds and see less people and all that. And um, so we have a wide variety of, of hunting opportunities here, you know, all you know, eight different big game species. Um, you know, and I have hunters, uh, WTA has hunters that, you know, they draw – they don't draw the same species every year, but maybe they, you know, one year they hunt antelope with us, one year they hunt elk, the other year they hunt deer. You got to be flexible and just, you know, you're, you're not going to draw prime areas every year. And, uh, so mix up your species and, and, um, you know, expand your horizons a little bit. Like, you know, as an outfitter in Colorado, you're kind of, uh, half the people love you and half of them hate you, you know? So, (laughs) you have to have big shoulders and be able to deal with that. And I'll go to meetings and people will, you know, talk badly about non-residents and there's kind of a push on right now. And, you know, Wyoming and, and New Mexico before that to kind of slow down on the non-resident ag numbers things. And I understand that, but, you know, a lot of our local hunters here, I've gotten them to think about it and look at the big picture and like, don't you ever want to hunt another state? I mean, don't you, why aren't you applying? Why aren't you applying in Alaska? Why aren't you applying in Nevada? Why? I mean, geez, you know, if this hunting is so important to you, 
that you're going to push somebody else out. Are you really trying to hunt as much as you can, or are you just, you know, watching your own backyard a little too much, but I don't want to get too much into the politics. I mean, um, I, we take a lot of resident hunters, you know, with our outfit Mm -hmm. and I have a lot of resident hunter friends and that's my philosophy is, you know, why would you want to limit yourself to just your home state? You know, that's, you know, there's a lot of other opportunities out there and Colorado has a lot of them and a lot of different species and, and our draw system is predictable for most units. You know, like everybody talks about the, the big four or five elk units, you know, unit two and 201 and 76 and 61 and, you know, where it's, you know, double digit points to draw. And, well, there's a whole lot of other opportunities that our draw system works wonderfully for where every three, four years you can predict your hunt mm-hmm. and book a hunt in advance. We book hunts in advance with our outfit a lot you know we can tell you when you will draw it's not a random draw state like arizona or nevada or something like that so i play all those games in those other states too but in colorado you know we have a leg up you know you can predict the draw if you're not obsessed with you know four units mm-hmm. you know in the state so yeah well, that's great yeah well, Scott, I mean, I've got a page of notes here. I, I don't know if you, you you probably realize this, but as you're as you're talking, the the little bits of information that you put in between, you can anybody that's listening can obviously tell that you do your you've done your research for for thirty some years, and just like as, as you're listing off the reasons why and and what we do, there it's it's not guesses for anybody that's listening. It's not guesses. He's doing it for a certain reason. Um, and he's, if I go back, he doesn't have to advertise. So you barely see any of his pictures, but when you do see something big come out of Colorado, generally, generally speaking here, I'm air quotation, generally speaking, Scott had something to do with, with that, especially on the, on the draw, the draw tag side and, and some of the deer coming out of the Eastern Plains, which always shocks me every year. <laughs> well, I appreciate the kind words. It just, it's all we do. We do this full time, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, um, we've been at it quite a while. We got in on the ground floor years ago and, uh, it's great to work with you and WTA and, and, uh, you know, I've tried to keep doors open to different people to work with over the years. I've even, you know, co co-outfitted on hunts with other outfitters for, you know, areas that are new to us or areas that, you know, we're helping with like uh auction or raffle statewide tag things. I mean, um, but yeah, it's a great state. Um, I guess the last thing I would say would be just for your personal hunting is, you know, uh, a lot of guys are do it yourself and that's great. Mm-hmm. But like for me, I've drawn all the Western states for elk, you know, Nevada, Utah, Arizona, drawn deer in Arizona. I've drawn, you know, a lot of good sheep tags. You know, I don't have time to go there, you know, and do everything on my own. So I know what an outfitter can bring to the table. So I do my research, find a good outfitter. And I usually book a hunt because I, you know, part of the DIY thing I think is almost like this might be saying it too strongly, but an insecurity thing. Like I am very confident in my hunting abilities. Yeah. I, to me, that animal means just as much to me, whether I had a couple of friends helping me or a guide or I did it on my own. I'm very confident in my hunting abilities. Why wouldn't I want to stack the deck? Exactly. And, get some help from somebody who's there 365 days a year or, you know, when I, I, I can't go to Arizona and scout, I, I know 
I know enough. I could go down there and pull it off myself. I know I could, but mm -hmm. I try to stack the deck and I don't remember spending the money. I remember the animal and I, you meet a lot of new friends and it's kind of like having paid friends. You know, a lot of times I'll, we get late phone calls for people right before the fall that they've drawn their sheep or goat or moose tag and their friends all petered out on them. Yep. And now they're looking for other help and we're probably booked up and can't help them most of the time. But, you know, it's just, I know I can't do a tag justice sometimes, an out-of-state tag, so I hire somebody. And it, I feel just as happy with that animal as if I did it, do it yourself, you know. Because uh, I'm very confident in my hunting abilities. I know you've hunted a lot. I'm sure you could do a lot of your hunts mm -hmm. on your own. But, you know, I want to enjoy the trip and, and have the, the little details handled. And that's what we try to do for people. Exactly. And, and I think you, you said it just I mean, perfect in, in my mind. You want to stack the deck. Like everything, yeah. everything in life, would you always pick the hardest way that you possibly could every time? Like if, right. if you had a yeah. garage at your house and you're pulling your car and it's the middle of winter, would you put, would you just do it to park it outside every time? Just because, just because, or would you pull it in? Like that's the stack the deck yeah. and, and, and that's different for everybody. Not, not everybody can afford an outfitter, but there are lots of different options sure. out there when you think about an outfitter too, like the option of, yeah. of the, the backcountry camps that you just listed. Like, yeah, there's, yeah. there's a reason that those are booked up for forever, just because the, what that cost is and what it gets you like that, that's an, it's, it's a semi-guided hunt. I look at it as it's not a guided hunt, but they put you and they given you everything to get into the right area to go and do it. Yeah. Like that. Yeah. And the other thing I've learned is, is if you wait for your friend to go with you out of state or something, you're, it's never going to happen. There's always I mean, a lot of excuses. Yeah. I mean, I I've hunted with friends out of state. I've hunted with family like you do. Um, but if you really want to go hunting, you got to pull the trigger yourself. And if you can get somebody to go along with you, great, but otherwise you're going to, your life's going to pass you by and you know, your buddy or your buddy's wife or something, put the kibosh on it. Well, you know, find, find somebody who's as serious as you about it or just do it yourself, you mm -hmm. know? And that's another reason to go with an outfitter is you, you show up and you got other people you're with. It's fun. Yep. You know? Like-minded so. people too. Exactly. Yep. Well, perfect. Thank you for your time today, Scott. All right. Good talking with you. Keep in touch. Will do. Thank you everyone out there for all the support and downloads. Don't forget, go leave a five-star rating and a written review on Apple Podcasts. That always helps. Also, if you're looking to book the hunt of a lifetime, go visit WTA at WorldwideTrophyAdventures.com or give the team a call in the office at 1-800-755-8247.